John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 12. Take a moment to get there. Actually, we're going to start in verse 9. We're going to start reading. It makes more sense there. This is the word of the Lord. It's for you today. John chapter 12, starting in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called to Lazarus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard He had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much Fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our Father, we ask that you would speak through your word and that through your revelation we may know you. 
Give us understanding and faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember the day distinctly when I learned that my father had been letting me win playing board games. My dad and I used to play checkers a lot. We played chess. I don't think I was very good, but certainly my ego thought that I was because I beat him with great regularity. Great regularity. I started young, too. I thought I was some sort of prodigy, I'm sure. And I remember the day when Dad was like, oh, well, yeah, I've, letting you, I've let you win for years. Wait, what? What? Yeah. All of those things that I had done, all of those events, all of those victories suddenly have a very different meaning. I mean, you, you beat dad in chess when you're like nine years old. Man, that, that does something for the ego, doesn't it? You kind of store those away. Yes, checkers, I am a checkers king. Ha. And then you find out the real truth and you're like, you know, that, that actually doesn't have the same meaning. It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, some chess, chess protege. I'm not. It doesn't mean that I'm some great checkers, you know, king or something of the sort. It means that my father loved me and he loved spending time with me. And playing games was one way that he could develop my intellect and play a little bit harder each time. So I had to work a little bit harder to win to build that game playing mentality. It's no less significant. It it just has a different meaning than what I understood at the time. At the time, I thought it was this great victory. And as an adult, I realize it was. But not the victory of beating my father, because I couldn't. But the victory of being loved by my dad and spending time with him. The passage that we're in now is kind of... it's the, the chess game itself, so to speak. It's the event that the disciples and the crowds are looking at, and as they're winning, they're thinking, this is it, we've done it. In verse 16, we find out it, it actually wasn't till glorification, until after Jesus has been raised, that they go, oh, <laughs> we misunderstood. We weren't beating dad in chess. It was something far different. We, We misunderstood. And that's actually part of the sermon that John is preaching to us as he tells this story. It's recounted in all four Gospels, but John tells it differently. He highlights certain things. He's the one that talks about palm branches. No one else really kind of mentions that because he's telling it with a specific agenda. It's a good one. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. That agenda starts in verse 9 as he explains the exact context of the triumphal entry. What is happening before Palm Sunday, before the triumphal entry? Well, Jesus has just raised a man from the dead. An activity that is miraculous that we would all be excited about, but an activity that the Jews, particularly those in authority, hated. 
You see, the Pharisees hated Jesus because through this entire book, he's been telling them that he's God and they didn't approve. So they hate him. But the Pharisees, are, they're the minority in power. They're the ones that have a very limited say. It's the Sadducees that run the show. They don't really care about Jesus either way. They don't bother with him. He's not a, an issue to them until he raised a man from the dead. Because, you see, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe anybody would be resurrected. They thought you died and that was it. It was the end. It was a good time. You had a good run. Have a good go. Okay, you're done. And so now here is a man who's been raised from the dead. And now the Pharisees hate Jesus and the Sadducees hate Jesus and they all hate Jesus. And so verses 9 through 11 explain what happens. Jesus is out there. They've got Lazarus with them. They've been hanging out together. And a crowd comes out to see. And it makes sense. I mean, if I knew there was a guy in Fort Mill who'd been dead for many, many days and spent time in heaven and had come back, I'd love to go talk to that guy. What's it like to be dead? Are you scared of it the next time? I would assume you wouldn't be because you already know what happens on the other side. I'm assuming you can't tell me what it looks like. I mean, that's what Paul does when he says, uh, I've seen heaven itself. He comes back and goes, well, I can't talk about it. In fact, actually, that's probably the best indication someone hasn't been to heaven if they come back and immediately start flapping their gums about their trip to heaven. The more they talk about going to heaven, the less you can trust it, just for the record. Lazarus is here. They go to kill me, never shows up in the scriptures ever again. The person who's alive, who's actually seen glory, doesn't actually talk. Significant. But they all go out to see him. They go out to find Lazarus, to go out to find Jesus. And the huge crowd gathers around Christ. And it's interesting, you see the story developing. You have Jesus surrounded by the masses. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees plotting, how will we be able to kill him? Well, next week is Passover. There's going to be so many people. Jesus is going to be surrounded. It's probably not a good time. Maybe we'll wait till after the Passover. He'll, he'll wander out into the wilderness to pray and then disappear. Maybe that's what we do. Jesus, on the other hand, has other plans. This is part of what John highlights in the story, is that Jesus is not the victim in his death. He's the one in charge the whole way through. In fact, actually, he's got the crowd gathered around in verses 9 through 12, or 9 through 11, uh, verse 12. What happens? Large crowd that had gathered at the feast, okay, Passover feast, there in Jerusalem themselves. Somebody whispers there, oh, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And you get to see, kind of get in your mind's eye what's happening. Jesus, with a large crowd and Lazarus, is moving into Jerusalem, and the entirety of Jerusalem finds out that Jesus is coming. How do you think they found out that Jesus is coming? I suspect Jesus sent somebody to tell them. He's absolutely in charge. And so you have the two huge crowds about to meet. And they, they, they do actually run into each other on all that mount there. Jesus is walking. He's not riding the whole way. He's actually walking. He gets to the top of the mountain, about to descend uh, the Mount of Olives. 
And before he does, he says to his disciples, go and get the colt. And that's the part that we often read about the most. That's the part that Luke and Matthew highlight. John, however, doesn't. He doesn't highlight the the foreknowledge. Uh, Oh, by the way, go get the the colt and mama donkey and bring them here. He doesn't highlight that element. It doesn't highlight the throw your cloaks over it so I can write. It doesn't highlight that at all. Instead, John hones in on the kingly message. The crowds have gathered out in verse 12, and then verse 13, the coronation event happens. You see, this is the language of of a king showing up. They take branches of palm trees, which would have been a symbol of victory uh, for the Jews. If, uh, like, let's say the, the army had been out to battle and they'd won this massive fight, when they came back into Jerusalem, everybody would cut the branches off the palm trees and wave the palm trees uh, as an excitement. I think today we have ticker tape parades, right? Or I guess we did 25 years ago, 30 years ago. I don't know if we still do. Uh, but, you know, if you win the Super Bowl or something, they take you through the city and they shoot off all of the confetti and it falls down between the bill. It's the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a victory parade. But notice what they're singing. Hosanna, which is the imperative form of God save us. It's a statement that God will win. He will save us through his king. And then they start quoting the song. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And what are they saying about the king of Israel? Well, he happens to be that guy. This is not speculation for them. This is not like eh, generic conversation. This is, we think the king is here and he's that guy. Like, it's that man. If you want to talk about who rules Israel, it's him. It's Jesus. And Jesus stops on the top of the mountain as they're waving the palm branches as they're having this great event, praising the king of Israel, or what they think is the king of Israel. And then he stops, and he gets the donkey. And he rides in on this donkey, this, this portrait of the king, riding in on his steed, proclaiming his victory. And in the midst, you'd feel kind of the incongruence, wouldn't you? <laughs> When a king comes back from battle and he's just defeated his enemies, how do you want him coming in? You think about the Romans, what do they do? They, they ride in and their giant horses and their armor's all dinged and there's blood places and they're like, ah, victory. And what does Jesus do? He's sitting on a donkey. A donkey. I mean, out of all the intimidating creatures in the world, a donkey. There's unbelievable contrast taking place. And you would have to wonder how much of the crowd already feels it. You're like, this is the king of Israel. He's going to defeat Rome as soon as he gets the right horse to ride. Seriously, man, you can do better than a donkey. Come on. Of course, they don't understand, and I, I, I don't blame them. I don't often recollect Zechariah on the fly. They don't either. But they understand, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. He is the king. He's sitting on a donkey's colt. He's fulfilling scripture. And I love, who's in charge of fulfilling scripture? It's Jesus himself, isn't it? 
How does he end up on a colt? Oh, by the way, he stops in the middle of it and says, oh, go, go get the donkey. I'm going to fulfill the word that I have delivered to you. It's my word. I will keep it. And the crowds meet together. They pave the way. He rides into the city like a mighty king returning from battle. And you would think, man, this is, this is the real deal. But John actually wants to make sure we don't, we don't mistake it. He wants us to understand this isn't like the seven-year-old kid defeating dad at chess genuinely. Because he highlights, verse 17, what, what does he explain? Oh, by the way, be sure you remember the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They continued to be with him to see. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. They're not here to worship. They're here for a little bit of a show. They think this is the guy who could possibly defeat Rome. Doggone it, if we're not going to give him a try and we're going to see what can happen. In fact, they do the same thing to another guy just a handful of years later and they make Rome so angry, Rome decides Jerusalem shouldn't be around anymore. And it kind of stops existing because Rome burns it to the ground. They're just looking for another solution, another guy who might be able to get the Romans out of the way. They're just looking for any sort of solution. And the Pharisees, I love the Pharisees. They look to each other and say, well, we were going to kill him later. We were going to wait till nobody was watching. We were going to wait till he went out. Maybe on individual prayer time and a, uh, a knife found him or something. Or maybe he found some poison food or something. We were going to wait. We can't do that anymore. Look, the whole world's going after. Everybody's following. The whole crowd, the whole, the whole city, the whole country is after this guy now. We can't wait anymore. The timeline has been accelerated. Right, this is the point in the spy movie where the evil organization says, we can no longer wait. We must kill him now. And in the contrast, in the midst of the hubbub, you have the Jews that are following him for signs and for miracles. You have the Pharisees and Sadducees that are attempting to kill him because they hate him. And then in the middle of this, you have some pagans show up. And this is the most interesting one of them all. Verse 20. <laughs> Those who went to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks. Hang on, what now? I mean, they, were to, they were Greeks? They were total pagans? That have kind of in some sense converted to Judaism? They're, they're curious. They're making the migration from Greek religion into Judaism, which would not have been a, a, an easy transition to make because they're not even allowed in the temple. Like They don't get to come into worship like this. They don't, they're, they're outside. They would have to be listening through the windows. And these Greeks come up to try to find Jesus, and they, they find Philip, first guy they can get a hold of, and they're like, sir, we, we, uh, we want to see Jesus. And this is not the like, um, which, which one is he? Oh, that's him, cool, I know what he looks like, I'm out, I'll see you later. This isn't like the one who's, somebody who's lost in a crowd and they're just trying to identify who the celebrity is. This is the ones that they're like, no, we, we want, we need to talk with him. Sir, we need to be 
with Jesus. We actually believe him. I think out of all of the parties kind of involved here, aside from the disciples, these are probably the only people we see in heaven, most likely, at least at this point in the story. Sir, we, we wish to see Jesus. Philip's like, um, yeah, see, we're kind of busy right now. I mean, with all the crowds and the thousands and thousands and thousands of people and all, and like kind of the Corvation event and the palm branches and the donkey, like we're, we're kind of occupied a little bit. I don't really know what to do with this. Let me go get Andrew. So he goes and gets Andrew, and Andrew's like, I don't know. Well, let's tell Jesus, see what he wants to do. So they tell Jesus, and Jesus gives, I, I think, what would have had to have been maybe the most shocking answer that he possibly could have given to his disciples. Because all of his ministry, remember, he's been saying the hour's not yet here, 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 and now, uh uh-oh. That was actually perfectly timed. I, I, I really, I could not have planned that any better had I tried. That's fantastic. Verse 23. I will laugh at that for a long time, actually. <laughs> that one tickled me perfectly. All right, verse 23. The hour has come. Suddenly, okay, no, and now it's no longer future. It's no longer, it's not yet time. It's not yet time. It's not yet time. No, 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 no. It is time now. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that would be an amazing statement to hear from a homeless, poor traveling rabbi whose income comes from prostitutes being converted and giving it to him and the only cologne he gets is from women dumping it on his feet and wiping it off with her hair awkwardly this is not the guy that you would think of that would say oh by the way it's time for me to be glorified i guess they might think well i hope so you can't go anywhere but up what is glorification going to look like for him Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This would have been a staggering paragraph. In the midst of all of the glory and the hubbub, in the midst of all of the the frenzy and the activity, in the midst of this event where, hey, I mean, people are calling him the king of Israel, which he is. They're calling him, they don't mean it the way he does. He says, it's time for me to be glorified. And you would think, maybe this is time for Rome to die. And instead, what does he say? How will I be glorified? I'll be glorified the same way that a seed is glorified. It dies. And as I go into the ground and die, fruit will flow from my death like you would not believe. You have to wonder what Philip and Andrew do in the middle of this one. It's time for me to be glorified. Hey, guys, it's time. It's time. It's time. And then he starts talking about him dying, and they're like, no, 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 no. It's not time. It's not time. It's not time. Don't, don't, don't do that yet. You see, John is preaching a sermon here, and I would suggest that he's highlighting kind of two elements 
two elements to this sermon. The first is that Jesus is the king who is in control of the world. This is not a death that's going to, the death that follows here in a couple of chapters. It's not the death of a victim. This is not a man who was incapable of saving himself. This is not a man who is too weak or too, too powerless. He's not able to construct a mechanism whereby he could save himself. No, instead, John is highlighting this man is the king. He's the king of Israel. But not only is he the king of Israel, he's the king of heaven and earth. For he made it. The agent of creation. This is the king that, according to Zechariah, is coming to provide salvation for his people. This man, this Jesus, is the real and only hope. Element one. And element two, this king who is running the show, this king who is in charge, has a very intentional battle plan. And his tactic is one that has never been attempted before in human history. It is for the one who is in charge, the very God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, to lay down his life on the cross so that all enemies would be destroyed forever. So that the condemnation which his people have earned would be paid for and removed. So that death itself would be destroyed. So the wrath of God would be satisfied. So sin and temptation would be done away with. So that victory would be total. So what do we do with that? I mean, how, how do we apply a passage like this? How do we work through a passage like this? What do we do? Well, first and foremost, I mean, obviously, hopefully, you're going to see, this should cause us to make a big deal out of Jesus. I mean, he's the agent of creation, second person of the Trinity. He is the Savior of men and women, boys and girls. He is the only name whereby we may be saved. He is the only resurrection and life. He is the only pathway to heaven. We should make a big deal out of Christ. He is our life. But it's interesting that his battle tactic, it's the first time it's ever done in human history. It doesn't stop with him, though. For him to lay down his life so that he might gain victory for us. Well, it's interesting what he does, doesn't he? Verse 24, he says, Look, truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about himself. The problem is he doesn't stay talking about himself. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And now he's not just talking about himself, but he's talking about himself and his people. And then verse 26, he's not talking about himself, he's actually talking only about his people. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And you think about it, again, Andrew and Philip must have loved, I guess, a little bit of this. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And that is a really encouraging statement to hear when you're in the middle of the crowd of people that are waving the branches and singing Hosanna and praising you. But that is a terrifying sentence to hear from a man who's about to go be murdered. And I might lovingly as your pastor suggests, that we ourselves and the American church as a whole have fallen in love with the idea of following Jesus in the midst of the crowd and the branches and the happy songs and have kind of forgotten about following him to the cross. You see, his description of what Christianity looks like is verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And what that means is not that we we hate our lives and we should all go commit suicide like some terrible cult or something of the sort. No, 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 no. What he's meaning is, is if we want to have life, life is only found in the Lord alone, and this life has to be given to him. If we are to be his people, if we are to really and truly love life, it means we love him and we give all of this, all that we have to him. It means that my days don't belong to me. My nights don't belong to me. My holidays don't belong to me. For I belong to Christ. Paul is going to pick up this similar kind of concept, though different vocabulary. John is much more kind of narrative and story. Paul's much more kind of concrete and definitions guy. But he says, he calls us, we are slaves to Christ. We belong to him. He owns us. He owns every moment of our existence. Which honestly, for some might sound a little scary. (laughs) And were it anybody but the Trinity, it would be absolutely terrifying. But we know of his character. Where does my help come from? As Psalm 121 prayed earlier, my help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth who loves you so tenderly, doesn't let your foot be moved. He watches you by day or night. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. His care is perfect. What do we do with this? Well, I might challenge you, people of God. If you know the Lord and you love Him, you know you belong to Him, I might lovingly, gently push you to consider How comfortable have you grown with the palm branches and the songs and the adoration? And how much have you forgotten the difficulty? The death. The carrying our cross. Carrying your cross doesn't mean suffering through the the normal difficulties of life. Oh, I got the flu. It's my cross to bear. No. 
Cross is a means of, of execution. It means that I'm carrying with me the things that are actually killing my flesh, the things that are killing the, the, the wrongful desires I have, the things that are reshaping me like Christ. People of God, whoever loves his life loses it here to find it in Christ. Now, I recognize there are probably some in here that are like, I have no idea what that means. Great. I'm not mad at you. Ask me about it. Not now, like in the middle of the sermon. Wait till after the sermon. Ask me about it. Let's talk about what it means to belong to Christ, to be his slave to righteousness, to be transformed, so that we may all together bear much fruit and have eternal life together. May it be that we, his people here, living in the richest country in the history of the world, having the highest standard of living in the history of the world, may it be that we do not fall in love with that, but fall in love with our Savior, who is indeed not just the King of Israel, but the King of us, the King of Christ Ridge, the King of all creation, the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would... Work in our hearts that we may grow in devotion to you, grow in commitment to you, grow in belief in you, that we might be transformed by the King of kings and the Lord of glory, even the King of Israel himself, King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.